Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. So it's late April 2020, and it might also be late in our collective history. As I speak, our streets are empty, our economies have closed down, and hundreds of thousands of people are dying of a mysterious plague. So, Mark O'Connell, the author of Notes from an Apocalypse. Is this it? Has the apocalypse finally arrived, Mark? Um, To give you a characteristically vague answer, yes and no. Um, I mean, first of all, uh, I'm delighted to be described as an expert in anything, but I I don't think um, anyone who reads my book would probably not come out of it feeling that they had spent 270 pages or whatever in the company of an expert. But... but, um, you know, I, I guess part of the sort of underlying idea of the book is that in some way or other, it's always the apocalypse. The apocalypse is a sort of a going concern throughout history. And it's it's a an idea that sort of comes up as a response to times of rapid change and uncertainty and times when the future seems particularly sort of dark and unknowable. And we're definitely going through one of those times right now. It's no question. I mean, when I was writing the book, it felt as though we certainly were going through one of those times and it, it feels even more so now, obviously. Um, no, I mean, t- to answer the question in a sort of a more blunt way, I would say, of course, it's not the apocalypse. Um, this is just history going about its sort of business as usual. You know, plagues uh, have always recurred throughout human history. And I think the shocking thing about this is not the idea that it's the end of the world per se it's the idea that you know we're no different to people in medieval times or people in whatever time at history you know we're we're not exempt from these uh, catastrophes and i think that's the really shocking thing about this are you saying then that history is always the same because at the beginning of the book you have a quote from um, a german writer from the 1970s uh, i think who who says The world we have inherited seems exhausted, destined for an absolute and final unraveling. Is there something particularly exhausted about the early 21st century world? Or does it just seem exhausted to us? Yeah, I mean, I'm very interested in that sort of question, that tension around knowing from an intellectual point of view that the apocalypse is, as I've said, just a response to times of rapid change. And it's never, you know, it's it, it's, not, it's no more the end of the world now than it was in, you know, 1800 or whatever. But at the same time, there, we are going through a period in which there is a sense of we can't go much further with our way of life. You know, our systems are so vast and complicated. And, you know, capitalism and our sort of consumption of resources and so on it seems as though we've pushed this as far as it can go. And, you know, climate change, of course, is, you know, is experienced as the sort of the end game when it comes to these things. 
Um, and so there is a sense that we've we've gone as far as we can go. There is that sense of like, are we pushing into something where some kind of collapse is almost inevitable? Um, and, you know, I'm not a person who can make forecasts about the future. I'm really just trying to examine the present and the mood of the present through this idea of uncertainty around the future. And that sort of is those sort of formless, shapeless anxieties and fears are given shape in a way by the myth or the idea of the apocalypse. Uh, the book is in some ways like your first book, a travelogue, you go to Chernobyl, you go to New Zealand to see how uh, the billionaires from Silicon Valley are preparing for the apocalypse. You, you spend some time with what you call the preppers, these crazy armed radicals preparing for the apocalypse. In your travels, in your experiencing, researching your book, what particular episode, what place do you think best captured um, the, the current sense of anxiety, of crisis, of exhaustion in contemporary culture? That's a good question and a hard one because they all do that in sort of different ways, I think. Um, and just hearing you describe the book as a travelogue, which it absolutely is, actually. Um, it just seemed, what a, what a wildly anachronistic thing to have been doing. It seems like, um, you know, evidence of a former civilization flying all over the world and meeting all these people and so on. But I think, to answer your question, <clears throat> there's a, a, a long section of the book where um, I travel to South Dakota um, <clears throat> to visit uh, a quote-unquote uh, survival community, a place where um, a sort of a post-apocalyptic real estate entrepreneur, a guy named Robert Vecino, has uh, bought a, a huge um, cattle ranch and a former military munitions facility down there in South Dakota um, with a view to turning it into um, a place where people can go as a retreat when some kind of civilizational collapse event happens, whether that's caused by a nuclear war, um, a viral pandemic like we're experiencing now, you know, an asteroid strike, whatever it is. Um, the idea is that a, a catastrophe of this nature and magnitude will inevitably lead to um, chaos and savagery and the collapse of civilization. And then you've got this place where people can go to if they're willing to pay this private corporation enough money to uh, be protected and safe. And the perimeters are, um, the plan is the perimeters will be uh, patrolled by a kind of a private army. And so you will have almost a kind of a, uh, a post nation state, private state in a way. Um, and so I went down to this place and I met Ficino, who's um, trying to set up this community. And that seemed to me to be like a really troubling and fascinating kind of emanation of the particular sort of apocalyptic energy of our time. And that's a kind of example, I think, of what I was talking about in terms of, you know, the book is not, as you can tell, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical about the idea of the apocalypse, the idea that there might be some kind of, you know, existential wipeout of humanity. Um, that's not something that sort of looms particularly large for me, but I am interested in how these ideas of potential civilizational collapse and so on how these kind of illuminate what's already the case in our culture, in our politics. 
Um, and so a place like uh, X Point, which is the name of the sort of uh, planned survival community in South Dakota, a place like that seems to me to act almost as a kind of extreme metaphor for uh, underlying kind of fault lines in our society as it currently is. So if you've got a situation where people are preparing for the collapse of civilization by, you know, um, being protected by a private army and having these sort of um, luxury bunkers and so on, that's a situation that reflects certain kind of unsustainable inequalities in our culture as it is. Uh, and that's sort of what's interesting to me about, about these places. So that, that um, particular place and sort of milieu was, I think, particularly kind of vivid in terms of that. One of the things that I was struck by whilst reading your book was the, the maleness of the apocalyptic vision, the idea that maybe this was just coincidental because all the, the craziest of apocalyptic types you, you, you met and you described all seem to be male, white men, and middle-aged white men. Is there something particularly apocalyptic about that condition? Well, you know, as a white man approaching or already in middle age himself, maybe I can't see the wood for the trees on that question. Uh, and maybe there's a good reason why I'm attracted to these ideas and maybe it has to do with that identity. But I think, no, you're right. I mean, just as in my first book about transhumanism, the milieu, the sort of scene is overwhelmingly uh, sort of, you know, suffocatingly male and uh, generally speaking, you're very, very white. And, you know, I think... One of the things I started to see when I looked at, um, you know, doomsday preppers, for instance, and one end of the scale and, you know, right up to the likes of Peter Thiel buying land in New Zealand at the other end of the scale. I mean, it's particularly the prepping sort of scene is a very, very male and very white um, kind of movement. And I think a lot of the anxieties that this movement kind of cultivates and stokes have to do with... Uh, masculinity and privilege and so you know if you listen to preppers talking for long enough you'll kind of inevitably see that you know as i put it in the book they're preparing not so much for their fears as for their fantasies so the idea of a civilizational collapse situation for these people where you have no longer got the protection of the state and you've got uh, a situation where you as a person have to prepare for this kind of chaotic situation and you're going to have to protect your family and, you know, fend for yourself in the wilderness or against, you know, potential savages and so on. Um, this is a really like hyper masculinist fantasy, I think. And it's a, it's a fantasy that also plays into kind of the, the mythology around the history of American colonization, the expansion westward and manifest destiny and all these things. Um, and what really interests me about, preppers, um, all these kind of doomsday survivalist people, um, right up to sort of Mars colonization, which is another thing that I look at in the book. They all seem to be recapitulations of history. They're, they're as much about the past as they are about any sort of anxious idea of the future. Um, and it has to do with reclaiming this sort of former mode of masculinity, you know, uh, rugged individualist and all these kinds of things. And it appeals in that way to a very particular kind of man, I think. 
Uh, one of the the other really interesting chapters in the book is the one about Chernobyl. You go to a place called, and I'm trying to pronounce this correctly, in the Ukraine, Pripyat, Pripyat yeah. uh, which was the, the epicenter, I guess, of, of the meltdown of the, at Chernobyl. And you describe it wonderfully. You say it's it's Venice in reverse. What was it like then? Um, I mean, it's an extraordinary place. I mean, I wanted to go there because... You know, I was writing a book about the end of the world, about sort of the fascination and terror of apocalypse. Uh, and here's a place where you can glimpse, in a way, the end of the world. You can glimpse what uh, a place that was formerly the preserve of humans and of, you know, technologically advanced civilization, what a place like that is like when it's left to its own devices for 30 or 35 years. Uh, and so it is a glimpse of life after humans, in a way. Um and so it's an extraordinarily kind of strange and haunting place. Um, but it's also, it's strangely beautiful. I mean, you can still see, what really fascinated me about Pripyat is that I think like a lot of people, I'm fascinated by ruins anyway. And I write about that in the book. Um, but, you know, if you go to uh, Pompeii or Angkor Wat or somewhere like that, you're, you're walking around a sort of a complex of ruins, but they are the ruins of a former civilization, a distant kind of civilization. And the thing that's extraordinary about Pripyat is that this is our own civilization. You know, it's communist Russia, of course, or, um, you know, former USSR, but it's very much our own historical moment. I mean, this accident, Chernobyl, happened in my lifetime. You know, I have sort of vague memories of it as a kid. And you're looking at the ruins of a highly technologized civilization. And there's something unique and strange and uncanny about that. So that's something I try to sort of explore in that chapter by just walking around the place as a tourist, essentially, which is the only way you can really go there. So, of course, there is a missing chapter in in the book. It's the, it's the chapter on the coronavirus. Mm. Uh, I, I'm sure your publishers are probably now nagging you to add that. What would you write if there was a coronavirus chapter? Well, you are absolutely right. There is a missing chapter and my publishers are nagging me to write it in the form of a preface for the paperback edition. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's still such early days with this thing. And my, I mean, I've been through a bit of a trajectory with this. I think like a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people I've talked to have had similar kind of, uh, trajectories with, with their experience of the virus. In the first week or so, I found myself just very emotional about it. Um, you know, very uncertain, uh, and quite sort of bleakly pessimistic about the future. Um, I still have moments where I feel like that, but I've sort of leveled off and I'm trying and largely succeeding, although not always, but succeeding in seeing um, good things about this situation, at least from my own personal point of view. Um, but it's it's so kind of raw and it's so dynamic and there's a sense that like anything can change at any moment. It's difficult to know what my take on it will be in six months time or whatever. But it seems to me that the, the major kind of uh, revelation, uh, if you excuse the pun, about this situation for me is that, you know, we talked about preppers and, and the idea of the fragility of civilization and so on. And, you know, the, the book doesn't fo focus particularly on any one apocalyptic scenario. You know, it mentions in passing the prospect of, uh, among others, viral pandemics. But I think what you encounter with these preppers is it's not the viral pandemic per se that they're afraid of. It's other people. It's a collapsed civilization where people revert to savagery and you have to protect yourself and your family against 
marauders against people who are out to get your stuff or harm you in some way or just hungry or sick or whatever. Um, and that's a very dark, sort of chaotic, pessimistic view of human nature. And one of the things that I've seen and, and felt about this quote-unquote apocalyptic scenario that we're going through right now is that that bleak view of humanity has not really been borne out. And I think that's as much as anything else a political stance, the idea that people are savages, ultimately. Civilization is a very thin veneer over that savagery and you have to protect yourself against those people. That's a political stance for me. Um, and I think that's been disproven, broadly speaking. I mean, there have been moments of kind of hairiness. You've got people fighting over toilet paper in you know, supermarkets in the first few days or weeks of, of this thing. But uh, by and large, what I've been seeing is a kind of a strengthening of communities, certainly where I am in, in Ireland, um, a strengthening of kind of interpersonal bonds between people and communities and a sense that everyone is sort of acting out of a sense of basically collective self-interest. And that's, you know, there's a lot that's very dark and very terrifying about this situation, but that's one thing that I feel, uh, you know, can be set against the sort of apocalyptic ideologies that I'm digging into in this book. Right. So what you're really arguing against is the ideology of social distancing. So I wasn't surprised that you end uh, falling back on Hannah Arendt's human condition, uh, which is the 20th century's perhaps most articulate mm. defense of the social. Is there something in Arendt that you that, that in, in Arendt's human condition or in her philosophy generally that, um, that, 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 that brought out the optimism, the faith, the hope in you? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the book does end with the help of Arendt, um, amongst others, uh, including my children. Um, it does end on a note of sort of very, very tentative optimism, I think. I don't even know if I would go so far as to call it optimism. It's more. I was able to move somehow throughout the two and a half years or however long it took me to write the book. I was able to move from a position of more or less total pessimism about the future to not optimism, but an ability to sort of live in the moment and kind of bracket the future to some extent and to live with a sense that all we have is today and all we have is now and the future is unknowable and potentially very dark but I was able to sort of move to a position where that darkness was not overshadowing the present as much as it had been in the early part of the book and what Arendt says which I think is a very beautiful idea towards the end I think of the human condition she says that every time a child comes into the world it creates a set of possibilities that weren't there before something is there that wasn't there before and I felt that really strongly in the time around the birth of uh, our daughter our second child um, just the sense that there was this whole realm of experience and possibility and the sense of the future opening out. Um, because we, you know, as bad as things are and seem, uh, we don't know what the future is going to bring. Uh, and that's scary, but it also can be hopeful as well. Right. And uh, you mentioned children and Arendt and the two stars of your book, if you excuse those terms, are your two young children, your son and then your daughter who was born, I think, during or just before you, you started writing the book. Um, how has the writing of the book and this deep thinking about the apocalypse 
changed your notion of parenthood? That's a really good question. I mean, so like the book, as I said, sort of tracks that trajectory. Um, and in the in the very early part of the book, I'm writing about a time where I was basically overwhelmed by a tension between the inside and the outside world. So between being a parent and being just a person or a citizen or a writer, actually. Um, and one of those realms, the sort of, you know, inner parental realm or circle, that's, to me, has a lot to do with protection and you know, not just protecting your kids from sort of direct harm, but also protecting them from knowledge about what a dark place the world is. I mean, as a parent, I think you, you know, I guess you know this, like you, you kind of, you can't let the world in too much, particularly when they're very young. You know, you have to create um, a sense of the world as like a good place, a, a positive place, and the future as a realm of like possibility and life. And that wasn't what I was feeling when I looked at the news or when I looked at Twitter or whatever in those days. I was feeling a real tension between the outside world and the inside world. And I didn't know how I could sort of go on as a parent in that way. Um, and so that kind of is what the book grew out of. And I sort of realized through the course of writing the book, and, and you know, to say realized makes it sound rational. I think it was much more irrational than that and much more kind of uh you know operating on subconscious levels through exposing myself to these ideas for so long but i think what i realized is that you can't submit to the darkness which is what i was doing i was you know as a kind of a as a a personal kind of uh persuasion in a way like i have often tended to be quite seduced by pessimism and dark ideas um but also just as a methodology for writing the book, I had to submit to this sort of apocalyptic darkness in a way. And that did me no good actually as a person. And it was a really hard book to write because of that. And so I think by the time I came through it, I sort of realized, right, I'm not going back there again, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, I think I realized that to be a parent, you have to have hope basically, you know, you have no choice but to, to have hope and I think children are really good at pulling you out of at least for me I've found my kids sort of pulled me out of that despair in a way but it's it's difficult to quantify of course a lot of it of course, not, only, not only did you have a helpful wife and two kids but you also had a therapist but no priest no. Mark uh, in, in Dublin I know there are lots of priests um uh, there are more therapists than priests but what was the role of the therapist in in in, in helping you make sense of all this yeah, um, well, there's sort of scenes sort of threaded throughout the book of conversations between myself and my therapist. Um, a lot of the comparisons have been to The Sopranos, which of course I should have seen coming, but I never thought of that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I started seeing uh, a therapist around the time I started writing this book and the anxieties that I sort of examine in the book are the anxieties that I brought to therapy in the first place. Um, and so, I mean, that certainly helped. Um, a lot of the sort of scenes that I write about have to do with, you know, specific aspects of the book that were kind of eating away at me, um, you know, at that time. But actually, a lot of what I talked about, I don't, you know, it doesn't get too meta as in I don't talk about the writing of the book in the book in therapy. 
but a lot of what I was doing in therapy while I was writing about the book was talking about writing the book. I mean, as any writer can probably attest, it's sort of like 80% of your time is sort of talking shop, you know? Um, so there was a lot of that. And at the beginning of the book, you say, you ask, uh, well, you're quoting someone said, are we fucked? Uh, and I'm assuming that we're not really. Uh, the, the, the book is, for all its darkness about the apocalypse, is generally op op optimistic. Um, Mark, to, to, to finish, uh, to uh, support that optimism, what should people read? Is there a book that will get them to think or perhaps rethink the apocalypse that you came across in terms of your yeah. research for this book? There's a book, actually, it's, um, it's the, I use it as um, a line from it as the uh, epigraph for the book. And it's a book by Annie Dillard, who is one of my favorite writers of all time. And this is a book called um, For the Time Being. And the line I use in the uh, beginning of the book is, these times of ours are ordinary times, a slice of life like any other. Who can bear to hear this or who will consider it? Um, and the book is not about the apocalypse per se, although she does kind of range into eschatological concerns. It's a book about, um, Dillard is a very, I mean, she's a genius and a very unusual writer. Uh, she's a very religious writer. So it's a book, I guess the term would be theodicy. She's trying to grapple with the darkness of the world and the existence of evil in the world and the overwhelming presence of suffering in humanity and she's trying to square that with her, her own christianity essentially her own sense of like a personal god and it's a really beautiful strange kind of reckoning with with that darkness and one of the things that she does in the book is she tries to kind of undercut the sense that we live in extraordinary times and that because we live in extraordinary times our times must be the crucial times that they must be we must in some way be living in the last days. She tries to undercut that and to sort of bring in a sense that it's always been the last days. And I think it's just like, it's a, it's a disturbing book in a lot of ways, um, a beautifully written, like intensely poetic book. Um, but it's also, I think, uh, an uplifting book, despite the darkness that it sort of um, relentlessly kind of examines. And, I suppose I wanted to bring some of that energy, although I'm a very different kind of writer, I wanted to bring some of that energy to my book. Um, and I think that's a book that, you know, it, it's not for everyone. It's a strange book. But if I were to recommend one book for these particular times, it would be, it would be Annie Dillard's for the time being. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.